the first thing, we have this idea of, of what is a druggable protein. And one of the main classifications is that it has, um, it has a, a binding pocket. For example, an, uh, a kinase has an ATP binding pocket. And so that really limits you to about 5 to 10% of the, the proteome that have these, these pockets where you can have a small molecule inhibitor bind into it. By going after degrons with, with molecular glue and looking at the, these degrons, it opens up an entirely different target space. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I'm your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. On this show, we talk about precision therapeutics. And if you have been listening to us for some time, you understand that drug development is a data-driven endeavor. The role of bioinformatics in biotech has increased dramatically over the last two decades. And I'm very happy that we have on our show today a scientist who has been on the forefront of that transformation. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. John Castle, the Chief Data Scientist Officer at Monterosa Therapeutics. John received his PhD in geophysics from the University of Washington in Seattle, and pretty early in his career made a transition into the biotech space. He held leading positions at multiple very successful pharmaceutical companies, including Merck, BioNTech, and Aginus. Last year, John joined Monterosa, a company that develops drugs based on targeted protein degradation. John, we have been planning this interview for a while now, and I'm very happy that we finally made it happen. So very well, welcome on our podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. Perfect. So let's start right away. Um, I would like to start with your story, actually. You started uh, physics originally, but for, for the last 20 years, you were heavily involved in biopharmaceutical space. So what got you interested in biology and how having that physics background helps you solve problems in biotech? Oh, thanks. No, it, uh, I always enjoyed math and, and physics. It was something that just growing up was uh, a perfect fit for my interest. Um, after my, my undergraduate degree, I studied uh, geophysics with plate tectonics. And really what I was doing was big data, assembling large data sets and then interacting with, um, with professors, with uh, people researching the plate tectonics in different ways, everything from mineral physicist to chemist. And we all had a different um, piece of the puzzle that we were investigating. And so it was integrating large data sets, concepts with some technical expertise. And I think that's really what, what I, I love is working with great colleagues who are passionate about what they're doing and can bring a different piece of the puzzle together. I was doing my, my postdoc at, uh, actually at MIT in Boston and loved Seattle where I did my, my graduate work. And actually my wife said, hey, let's move back to Seattle. And she went on, this was in 2000, went online. There was a website called monster.com 
and typed in Seattle Science. And this new company called Rosetta Informatics that had just been started by uh, Stephen Friend was getting up and going. I applied, and this was the time when biology was, and particularly molecular biology, was exploding with the, the Human Genome Project. And the molecular biologists were doing amazing work, but they were still analyzing data in Excel. And Rosetta had the idea, let's hire a lot of physicists, guys and gals who could work with large data sets, who knew how to calculate a, a p-value, a chi-squared. Um, and so that's that's what they did. Uh, really, it was the, the quants of, of biotech. We hired a physicist who was doing neutrinos. We hired a physicist who was doing cosmic rays. Uh, they hired me, uh, a guy who was doing plate tectonics and looking at the core mantle boundary. And so all of us were there and really able to work as a team with the molecular biologist with this emerging field called bioinformatics. And I still remember we, we uh, started up and we heard that Nature was about to publish, this was in the fall of 2000, an article on the human genome. And within less than two months, we had put together a really amazing paper showing not only what the genome was, but what the transcriptome was and we're able to show where in the this vast new landscape, the genome, what elements were being transcribed uh, on a high throughput basis. And that was really the, the genesis of, you know, wow, we can we can use big data, we can integrate uh, the big data approaches with colleagues who are outstanding in molecular biology, who uh, are outstanding in um, drug development and use it uh, that way. And so that was really my, uh, my start and what got me really excited about biotech and where the field was going. Perfect, that's great to hear. And uh, I think it's very interesting to see how different fields actually uh, intertwine with each other and um, how data-driven approach, how, how physics can actually help solving a lot of biological problems. And I guess, uh, now we are more in the age where, where data are important in the drug development. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, your most recent venture, Monterosa Therapeutics. Your company is using a very interesting approach of targeting proteins to be degraded instead of uh, inhibiting them uh, by antibodies or other um, solutions. So maybe you can explain to our audience, how does this work and how do you use those data-driven approaches to, to optimize uh, drug discovery process? You know, this is, um, to be honest, uh, I didn't know much about uh, targeted protein degradation and, and I didn't know a whole lot about the ubiquitin system and how proteins are degraded until uh, about a year ago. You know, a lot of my work was on neoantigens and what I call post-proteosome. And so what was happening before the proteasome was something new to me, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you can start off with the, the tragedy of thalidomide. This was a drug that was developed in the middle of last century. Many women started taking that when they were having morning sickness, and it resulted in a tragedy, many uh, birth defects. It was withdrawn from the market. And later, it was still used in um, phenotypic screens to look for other uses of, of the compound. And researchers, uh, drug developers, were surprised when they found hits and were later able to develop it for autoimmune diseases like lupus and then also multiple myeloma. 
they were able to then uh, modify the drug and create another drug called lenalidomide that's just a, a small, a little bit different than thalidomide that has been able to treat more patients successfully. However, what, what was fascinating is, is no one knew how this drug worked. What was the mechanism of action of these drugs? And it was only 10 years ago when uh, investigators such as Nico Tomei were able to determine that the mechanism of action was really based on protein-protein interactions and being able to, if you will, glue proteins, disease-relevant proteins to an E3 ligase. Now, in E3 ligase, uh, each of us have about uh, 600 of these E3 ligases in uh, each cell, and the role of them is to take misfolded proteins, tag them with ubiquitin, and send them off and traffic them to the proteasome where it's, it's almost like the, the garbage disposal system uh, of the cell. So by understanding then how the mechanism of action of these drugs, of lenalidomide, you can then start to rationally design new drugs. And so working with some outstanding chemists, with outstanding biologists and really biochemists, being able to rationally figure out how we're going to modify protein-protein interactions. And so what my group does, it starts off by figuring out what do we think we can target? And these are proteins that have what's called a degron. This is sort of like a, a spike on the side of a protein that you can then use as a hook to attract it to one of these E3 ligases. The one that's used most frequently is a protein called Cerebon. Now, when you have these drugs like lanolidomide or many of our molecular glues, they dock into Cerebon and they actually change the shape of the proteins. So you're, you're modifying the surface properties of the, the protein, the conformation states, so they can then stick and it's very complementary to the target protein. By changing the, the compounds, you're able to change the shape of Cerebon so it actually sticks to uh, different proteins, it ubiquitinates them, and they're targeted for degradation by the proteasome. We then go through and say, okay, what can we pro, what can we degrade potentially? What do we want to degrade? What's going to help a patient uh, by modifying a, a disease-relevant pathway? And then our chemists are working on designing new scaffolds, new drugs that are going to change the shape of the of the E3 ligase, so influencing the the protein-protein interactions. And then, of course, we have the, the biochemical and cellular assays to demonstrate how we connect the two, how we connect the chemical space to the target space. Once we've been able to do that, and I've been amazed at how successful we've been so far, is that we have outstanding biology teams that then start a lot of the functional assays, demonstrating how it's working and getting ready to move that into uh, an IND and into clinical trials. So it's a big data approach. We're doing everything from target discovery to target prioritization to including some in silico screening of molecules using AWS, using lambdas, a lot of big data and, and new technologies. We're, we're having a great time at Monterosa. Cool. That sounds very fascinating. And it's nice to see how different um, aspects of drug discovery and drug development uh, merge together. 
And uh, I have one follow-up question uh, on that um, target screening and target prioritization. If you look at those backgrounds, uh, what is type of data that you're using to to make that initial assessment? Do you look at those proteins still from the perspective of, of the protein sequence, kind of looking at the DNA sequence and then predicting what, what the uh, structure would be? Or do you look at some specific 3D protein structure data to, to understand uh, where ubiquitin can be attached? You know, this is really a good and outstanding question. A lot of my work leading up to this was more on uh, NGS, so uh, next generation sequencing and using bioinformatics and computational biology on pathways integrated with DNA and RNA sequencing, which is a fantastic field. And as we go into things like single cell sequencing, coming to Monterosa, I really had to up my game and I've been fortunate to work with outstanding colleagues, uh, chemists, structural biologists, because you're, you're absolutely right. The Degron is both defined by the topology and the motif. And so what's being recognized is both what's called a G-loop. So you have to have the topology right of this, of this loop, and you have to have a glycine in the right position. We think we can expand the, the target space even farther with the right chemical matter beyond the G-loop uh, to other types of loops. But it's definitely a combination of the right topology, the right sequence motif, uh, and then also clashes outside of the, that Dagron that the, protein has, the two proteins have to come together in a very complementary way. Um, we're pioneering some, some of the team members that we've been able to hire have really pioneered this idea of fingerprints uh, and having very complementary fingerprints between uh, the E3 ligase and its neosubstrate on the other side. And then how does a, a ligand um, modify that? That's coming from some of the work at EPFL and Bruno Cornelli's lab. Uh, it's just we're able to integrate into the process as well. Yeah, I guess it is a challenge because you have to integrate so many different modes of data to to be able to do this screening uh, properly. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, along those same lines, it's we don't have chemical structures, or I'm sorry, we don't have protein structures for all of the human proteome. In fact, uh, the database PDB has only structures for roughly a third of the proteome. So one of the ongoing questions is how do we go beyond PDB? and all those other proteins that we may want to target, but there's not a, a protein structure, a crystal structure available for those. And that's what you mentioned earlier in terms of uh, protein folding algorithms, whether that's things like Rosetta or many of us have really excited about the results coming out of DeepMind, the AlphaFold and AlphaFold2 algorithms. And so other algorithms there we're able to use what's called homology mapping and similarities to go beyond the PDB and predict structures for other proteins. And then we're able to, right now we have ongoing projects to examine those and see which of those also have these degrons with the right topology and, and sequence motif as well. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I was just about to ask you about the uh, deep AI and, and AlphaFold because it, that was such a big news a few months ago uh, in the field. Um, and uh, yeah, it sounds like a very promising uh, way to solve, I think, uh, everlasting problem in, in structural biology. Uh, how do we reliably determine the folding? It's going so fast. And there, 
as well when we think about in, with the degrader space, with the molecular glues, you mentioned earlier uh, small molecule inhibitors and traditionally how, how drug development has gone after proteins. And the first thing we have this idea of, of what is a druggable protein. And one of the main classifications is that it has, um, it has a, a binding pocket. For example, an, uh, a kinase has an ATP binding pocket. And so that really limits you to about 5 to 10% of the, the proteome that have these, these pockets where you can have a small molecule inhibitor bind into it. By going after degrons with, with molecular glue and looking at the, these degrons, it opens up an entirely different target space. Uh, what we've been able to see is roughly 75% of the, the proteins, and we're, we're predicting over 1,000 proteins have these degrons, 75% of them do not have a binding pocket. And so it's really a very different target space that we're going after. Um, and, and so that's another way that then we're able to overlay what are the known drivers of, of disease, which proteins are those, and ask the questions, which of those are uh, degradable? And then that's, that's when the fun aspects come in with the chemist and the, the library the, and, and silico virtual screening. And then our, our colleagues who are doing high throughput screening with different uh, biophysical, biochemical, and cellular assays are doing an amazing job. We're then learning from their results also when they're saying, hey, John, you know, those results, uh, that was fantastic, but this one didn't work. And so we can go back to those uh, examples. And sometimes it's uh, case studies, if you will, of what didn't work, why didn't it, was the degron not accessible, was there something else? You mentioned lysines, was there no available lysine uh, to be ubiquitinated or other uh, processes? And so it's, it's a fascinating field that really can be approached. And what you need is all these people with the different expertises to come together in an organization um, because one person by themselves is, is not going to solve this. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to reiterate your, your point that um, if, if you can actually enable targeting uh, of, of proteins that, that could not be um, targeted in a conventional way by, uh, by other pharmaceuticals, that, that can really open uh, new doors of opportunities for, for some diseases which you probably are not able to treat just because the targets uh, are not really addressable. So that's, that's great to hear. And um, on that front, I actually wanted to ask you if there are any specific indications and diseases that Monterosa is focusing on at the moment, and, and what would be the challenges that you would see to bring in those therapeutics from, from the research lab to, to the clinics? No, it's a, it's a great question. And obviously, we're, we're a private company going forward, so I can't go too deep into our, our clinical development plans. But we definitely have a fantastic team with deep expertise starting off in oncology. Um, you know, we were able to hire some colleagues that were working, for example, at the Broad Institute on, on their DEPMAP project and on the, the CMAP projects there. We were able to hire other scientists who have really a deep background in developing actually small molecule inhibitors for oncology for precision medicine approaches. And so our, our real strength within inside the company, our expertise in terms of uh, clinical development is in oncology. Um, as you know, I, I've spent a lot of time at some uh, fantastic organizations in immuno-oncology as well. And so we are also looking at 
really interesting uh, T cell targets and other immune cell targets that everything from transcription factors to enzymes and phosphatases that you couldn't target with an antibody or with a, a small molecule inhibitor. At the same time, I think this is what you were alluding to also, is that we're looking at our target list. And this is something that some of us within the organization, you know, actually have a lot of fun when we're watching a, a football game on Sunday afternoon and the company, or the, I'm sorry, the, the team starts losing, for example. It's like, ah, you know, I'm sick of that. I'm going to look at the, the thousand, the list of a thousand proteins and going through and picking out, hey, I, you know, I just read a, a Nature article about uh, this target or that target. I wonder if we should go deeper on that. Uh, we're also prioritizing based on a lot of data from, for example, open targets and GWAS studies. And so really integrating what, is, um, what are the hot targets, not only in oncology and immuno-oncology, but in other areas, uh, genetic diseases, um, inflammation, and so forth. At the same time, we recognize uh, that we're not experts in those areas. And so we've been reaching out recently to some uh, key opinion leaders, thought leaders in these different areas and working with them saying, hey, you know, this target is something that seems very exciting. Uh, is that still exciting? And, you know, sometimes they're saying, no, that was, there was some excitement last year, but that's died down. Or man, that, you know, if you could degrade that, that would really help patients with this autoimmune disease or with this uh, genetic disease. And so getting a lot of good feedback. Obviously, as we move forward, we're really working on how do we prioritize? Uh, are we partnering some of these or are we going to be developing some of these in-house and getting the, the biology team scaled up so that they can take these and, and run with these? Because there's a lot of hard work in, in figuring out what assays are we going to run, making sure that the, the readouts are appropriate. And again, a lot of our internal expertise is in uh, oncology and cancer. Uh, what assays are we going to have for these other therapeutic areas to demonstrate uh, activity? And so we've been not only for the thought leaders, but also thinking about how are we going to be partnering, collaborating with key labs and, and key organizations in terms of helping us move these therapies forward toward, toward patients. Sounds great. Uh, and uh, I guess you, you definitely don't have problem with dedication because if you can stop watching uh, the football game of your favorite <laughs> team just to, just to look through the list of potential targets, uh, that's a very good sign, uh, I guess, for the project and for the company. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a guest, please write us an email team at pmedcast.com you can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook just type in personalized medicine podcast and you will find us there to download the show notes for this episode visit our website pmedcast.com it's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t dot com the show notes include guest bios links to their most notable work and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. John, you mentioned already immune oncology, and that's another topic that I would like to discuss with you today. 
While at Agenus, you you work extensively uh, in that field, and Agenus is the company that that developed a lot of antibodies uh, targeting specific tumors. And I know that you've worked a lot with neoantigens, with those specific tumor antigens. And uh, by their nature, they can be very different between individual uh, people. So in your experience, how we can best leverage uh, genomics, proteomics, and other omics approaches to develop that smarter and more targeted antibodies that would feed specific patients? Right. So, I mean, there's a couple different examples. And you know, I, I had a wonderful time at Agenis. Uh, I still have many wonderful colleagues working there. And, it's, you know, they're moving forward. They're getting very close to uh, filing their, their BLA for the first uh, antibodies that are going to be helping treat patients and, in fact, cervical patients. In immuno-oncology, it's definitely been a tough nut to crack in terms of patients are going to benefit from a, a given therapy. Uh, there's many wonderful research studies that have shown what is the influence of tumor mutational burden as one example. Also, a lot of discussion on PDL1 high versus low tumors. And then how do you measure PDL1? Uh, which antibody, which IHC assay are you going to be using to measure that? Um, and then also this concept of, of hot versus cold tumors. Um, what is the inflammation state of, of, and how much of the immune system is infiltrated into the, the tumor microenvironment, the TME? There's certainly ongoing studies, both, uh, you know, what medicines do we want to develop for a lot of these, these patients? Agenis has really taken a, a leadership position in not only the first therapies that are going to be moving out, but uh, also some of the upcoming therapies that they're developing. One of them is uh, a next-generation CTLA-4 molecule, and this is something when I was there that we, we published on, is that we recognize that you can modify the back end of the, the FC region. And what you could do with that is that then you can increase the affinity for um, some of the effector cells, and you could really then create a better immune synapse between the antigen-presenting cell and the T cell. Uh, you may also enable better um, T cell, and so, I'm sorry, Treg depletion in the tumor microenvironment by having a, a better FC and and just for for everyone I, I imagine everyone knows the FC region is sort of the the back end of the antibody so on the front you have the the targeting moiety of the the antibody in the back end the FC region is what can interact uh, depending on it how it's engineered can interact with other cell types, for example, um, rituximab engages uh, NKs for, for ADCC. Now, one of the things, and I mentioned rituximab that was found, was that there is a genetic polymorphism that's encoded in the, the FC region. And what that can do is that it means you can, um, of CD, I should say, of CD16 of the FC receptor. And so that can influence how strongly effector cells interact with an antibody like IPI. And it's, not, it's a fairly large um, population, uh, depending on where you are, 20 to 40% of the population has one of these weak binding FC receptor polymorphisms. And the premise is, is that 
And we, at a chance, we were able to show this certainly in many preclinical studies is that if you have a, a weak uh, binder, you're going to have less benefit from IPI, so uh, Yervoy. Uh, and so by modifying the FC region of this next generation molecule that a genus is developing, they're able to give a more effective treatment to patients regardless of their CD16 polymorphism. Uh, they're demonstrating that right now in clinical trials that are ongoing and really being able to show this going forward. So there's something where by understanding the biology and the genetics of the whole system in immuno-oncology, they've been able to engineer and develop and now clinically test um, a new next-generation antibody that's you know, taking off the brakes and moving that forward. Um, so that's one example of how the, the genetics is playing a role. Yeah, it sounds very exciting. And um, I know that Agenus um, is also very, very active in those bispecific antibodies that can target um, multiple, um, multiple uh, proteins at the same time. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about that and uh, why those bispecific antibodies can be uh, more beneficial for cancer patients compared to, to conventional monoclonals? That's a really good question. So you have bi-specific and bi-paratopic antibodies. And um, so as we mentioned on the back end, if you will, of the antibody, you have this FC region. In the front end, you have the FAB and, and you have two regions. And so what you can do is you can, if you want, you can mix and match two different targeting moieties. Typically, in a, the antibodies that are produced in your, in your body endogenously, you have the same targeting from both uh, both protein, both sides are targeting the same protein in the same epitope. With the bi-specific, and you really have to have a great team to manufacture it, like like Agenis does. You have you have the opportunity to target two different uh, epitopes, one with each arm. Now, there's different things you can do. One of the approach that many companies is working on, are working on is that you can make a bridging molecule that in effect brings together two different cell types. So you might have one side of the antibody, one arm latch on to a tumor specific protein and the other one latch on to a T cell specific epitope. And then you're creating a, a molecule that's going to bridge the two and bring the T cell in proximity to the tumor cell. Another aspect is to be able to take two different uh, antibodies, or I'm sorry, two different proteins that you're targeting, and then you can, that are on the same tumor cell or the same immune cell. And then you can use a different approach where you start thinking about, do I want to make almost like a logic gate where it's an and, uh, where, whereas you're only going to latch on to the cell if you're able to bind both arms. And so both proteins have to be expressed. And that can help you conceptually target a cell that you can increase the specificity because both of those proteins have to be expressed on the cell surface. There's other aspects also that you can leverage in terms of how you're able to change the clustering uh, of different proteins on the cell surface, which can influence the intracellular signaling. With your antibody, you can bring two different proteins in proximity on the cell surface, 
and have them cluster, which can then change everything from phosphorylation to other signaling patterns intracellularly. So in, in many ways, being able to change what's targeted by each arm of the antibody enables you a tremendous amount of flexibility to go and, and do, uh, do different things, uh, for lack of a better term, um, including the bridging of two different cell types and then uh, targeting with that AND approach and then also modifying the clustering of, of two proteins on the cell surface. Sounds really amazing, kind of what the human mind can come up uh, with and kind of re-engineer the natural proteins to to perform a very sophisticated um, reaction or function uh, in the human body. Just to continue on the on the topic of immune oncology, what I um, told our audience already that you work for BioNTech, obviously a very hot company uh, <laughs> right now, uh, given the COVID situation being the first manufacturer of uh, of approved COVID vaccine. But I didn't know uh, until very recently that you were actually employee number five uh, at the company. So you're among the very first people who who started there. So can you tell our audience a little bit about your experience with BioNTech, what you were doing there, and how how did it look early on at the beginning before the company kind of grew to the proportion it is uh, today? Oh, my pleasure again. And it's just, I mean, it's like you said, it's, Amazing to see what, uh, how Bayan has built up the company over the past decade. Um, if we go back to 2009, uh, I was in Seattle at the time. Things were going well. Had a great run. Uh, Rosetta had been purchased by, by Merck. We had done a lot of studies on the human transcriptome, a lot of first um, studies that were just helping to expand the target space for drugs. We're looking at how you could use siRNAs, uh, next-generation sequencing, some of the first RNA-seq studies, the first uh, whole exome uh, studies, going really well. At one point, Merck decided to uh, shut down the, the Seattle site. It was a satellite site and decided in 2009 to, to close the site. And so I was uh, looking around it. My wife is actually from Mainz, Germany, and so I, I was here once looking at what companies were, were here, and there was a company called Ganymed that was working on some antibodies, and I sent an email in, and uh, Oslam and Ugar, the, uh, the founders of both Ganymed and, and later of BioNTech, answered me right away, and I, had a, I still remember I, I came to their, the Ganymed conference room had a long discussion with Ugar. He really talked to me about his vision uh, for what he and Oslam were putting in place, how they were working with the university, how they were working with the, the ministry here in Rhineland-Pfalz, the, the state in Germany, how they were also working with some outstanding investors to develop and take some of the new ideas that they had and take them into clinical trials and develop them into, um, into therapeutics, helping patients. I was amazed. Uh, you know, I had done a lot of work in molecular biology and, as I mentioned, in, in bioinformatics. And at that point, I had already knew, uh, recognized that the immune system was going to be the next frontier. How do we modify the immune system? How do we look at it? How do we integrate that into, uh, into our studies? At the time, you know, when we were doing next-generation sequencing, no one was thinking about that every cell was different than every other cell. 
Um, and that's obviously the case in B cells and T cells. You have the T cell receptor and every T cell receptor, alpha and beta has a different sequence. Um, and I was already starting to think about how do we, how do we leverage that information? And Ugar was really miles ahead of me in thinking about the vaccine approach um, and cell therapy already back then in 2000 and 2008 and 2009. So we came in 2009. It was, you know, it was really the, the classic startup. Me and a few colleagues, we, uh, BioNTech had rented space and it was actually an apartment. We, uh, Two of us and then later three of us were, I forgot if it was the kitchen or the dining room that we sat in, in this uh, building. We later had some, uh, if you will, leftover space from the university where, you know, BioNTech and, and an institute called Translational Oncology or TRON was started, uh, a not-for-profit institute. And we were there, um, you know, very classic that it was the power would go off every every week. They would you didn't drink from the water from the the faucets because the the water was yellow in the morning. It was it was a building that was about to be torn down, and they had just you know sort of the garage uh, space. We really focused early on on using RNA as the as our modality for that we we're going to be treating patients with, and this was something where we were really thinking at the time, how can we use it either for T cells? How can we use it for uh, other approaches? And the, the dominant one was for vaccines. I was able to come in and using the next generation sequencing, the, the bioinformatics uh, team that I was able to hire, put together really a way to go from here's a tumor to who, here's a blueprint for a vaccine. You know, and what are the mutations in that individual tumor and then predict uh, setting up the first pipeline, what could be recognized, what could be seen by the, the T cells? So what's going to be presented on the HLA alleles and what can be recognized by the, the T cells? And then Ugar had put together this amazing team of immunologists and uh, RNA experts who were able to take that design, that blueprint, and encode it into a, into a vaccine, produce it. First, obviously, a lot of mouse studies to demonstrate that we could um, we can do some immune response. Then tumor studies in mice to show that we could clear B16 and CT26, uh, 41 mouse models. I remember work with Mustafa Deacon, with Sebastian Kreiter, uh, Michael Kozlowski, all of my colleagues back, Cedric Britton, back from those days of really pushing the, the platform forward. We were able to get funding from different sources, from applied sciences in, in Germany, what's called the BAMBF, to, um, to the investors to really move this forward. Uh, Ugar had the foresight that we're going to first go into cancer, both what we call the off-the-shelf approach. Sometimes I called it the pret-a-porte vaccines, you know, the vaccines that were go off the shelf for patients, and also the individualized approach. Uh, he was also thinking at the time, how could we use this for infectious diseases as well? Um, could we use it for uh, a universal flu vaccine and this approach? Since I've left, I mean, the just how they've, I've been amazed at how they've continued to develop the platform. Uh, you may have read that when there were multiple vaccine candidates for COVID that they started to develop. And so some of the first vaccine candidates for COVID that came out, there were four different candidates. One 
was using the entire RBD, one was just a spike. Both of those had modified RNAs. And then there was a self-amplifying RNA, another technology that they've, they've really moved forward and integrated successfully. And then the trans-amplifying RNA, another fascinating, uh, actually using mechanisms that viruses themselves use and use that to make a, a self-arranging and self-almost manufacturing vaccine uh, in the cell. And so just very clever, very uh, exciting new technologies and integrating them very successfully. It was a, an amazing time. We were pushing it. We were tired sometimes. We were exhausted. We were moving as fast as we could. This was back f- five years ago when I was working on the cancer vaccines there. And I know from colleagues that I see on the street here in Mines that that, uh, that ambition, the pressure also still exists, obviously, as they're, they're racing to help uh, cure and, and solve the pandemic that we're all facing right now. Perfect. That's such an inspirational story. And uh, yeah, just to see what, what came out of the company that started essentially in the one-room apartment in about 10 years, being like by far the most important company, I think, at this moment of time in the world, providing vaccine for, for very much needed cause. I, I was actually on a plane a year ago flying. Uber and I were both flying to to Boston at the time from Frankfurt. And we were talking about different studies that we've been reading and, and reviewing in, in different uh, journal articles, different things about, you know, the, the IO space, the immuno-oncology space. In the middle of the conversation on, on you know, somewhere over the Atlantic, Ugar said to me, hey, are you, you tracking this, this um, what's happening in, in China right now? I said, well, yeah, you know, I, I've been reading about the Wuhan, um, what's going on there. And man, it's a tragedy. And I could tell Ugar was thinking a lot more. I mean, we, we'd all gone through SARS, we'd gone through MERS um, and seen, you know, the numbers go up and then the numbers go down. And sitting in Germany, I was not really thinking this was going to impact me. Ugar obviously was thinking about that. And Ugar and Oslom and, and um, Christoph uh, Huber, another uh, colleague at BioNTech, were already planning and thinking, what if? And, you know, definitely with their foresight, uh, they've been able to, you know, make, <laughs> hopefully, uh, we're going to see how they've made the world a lot better. Um, but that was already a year ago. Like many of us, I pr- was doubtful that this would be a pandemic, and uh, obviously, I was wrong. Yeah, I think all, almost all of us, really doubted that it will go into the scale it is it is now today, right? So, like we've we've seen some local right. uh, pandemics before uh, in terms of previous coronavirus uh, about ten years ago, swine flu, but but that never really grew to the proportion that COVID did, and. Uh, I think it's really amazing to see how forward-thinking biotech leadership was was back in time when when this was still kind of the problem was at its infancy and just to see that entire vaccine was developed and approved also for a rather unconventional method uh, as of today uh, in science that, that's just really amazing and uh, it gives a lot of hope in terms of what science can do if you really put our heads together and and channel the resources in the right direction. You know, it's you're you're absolutely right. I mean, who would have thought? I mean, when we started even these trials for the vaccines, who would have thought that a, a completely novel 
you know, it's not completely novel. People had studied it, but nevertheless, you know, who would have thought that uh, an RNA vaccine would be so successful? And uh, it's just fantastic from these companies like BioNTech, like Moderna, uh, and others developing them that have just really, um, it's been amazing. And that's, you know, one of the things I think about is how, on the one hand, man, you know, we're in lockdown here in Germany. It's gray outside. It's dark. The, the, the <laughs> Uh, at the same time, wow, this is the science is keeping a lot of us going right now in such a wonderful way. Everything from BioNTech with how they've been able to leverage this. And I think about my career, uh, thinking about a genus going forward with antibodies and biospecifics and cell therapy that they're moving forward. The depth of understanding the, the immune system with uh, targeted protein degradation and molecular glues. This is a whole new modality. And I think you're going to be having a lot more conversations uh, on your show about uh, molecular glues and protein degradation, moving into precision medicine, not necessarily looking at the immune system, but back to what, what tumors are going to be responding to uh, these targeted therapies, tumor-targeted therapies, either in terms of expression levels, and we found some amazing biomarkers, and hoping you know, that as we go forward to have those accelerated approvals because we're getting those those high we hope to get those high uh benefits those crs and and responses and so this is really a glorious time we, we've seen the market wall street really uh responding well also to see how much uh excitement there is and it's it's at the point where some of the studies have shown there was a, a lag for a while and that there was more money going in and less productivity coming out of, of drug development. And that some of the first numbers show that that's actually shifted in the last years. And it's by discoveries and figuring out things like how the immune system is working uh, to help vaccines and cell therapy and antibodies uh, to understanding things like um, precision medicine and how, you know, we haven't nearly gone all the way in precision medicine. There's so much more we need to be able to do it, but we are doing it and we are making progress to entirely new modalities where we've had drugs like lenalidomide that make, uh, that help so many patients, but no one understood how they worked. Now we do understand how they work and that opens up an entirely new toolbox or armamentorium that we're building to help treat patients not only for cancer, but other therapeutic uh, indications uh, as well. And so I'm so excited about where where we're going and where we're moving the the whole field and able to help uh, help treat patients. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I, I share your excitement. And I think that's the message that we try to preach on this podcast as well, that there is just so much more to come uh, in the space of personalized medicine. And uh, both in terms of science and then kind of translated that science from, from bench to clinics. John, I know that there are a lot of young scientists who are listening to this podcast, and uh, I would like to ask you which one piece of advice would you give them, perhaps specifically for those who, who would like to pursue career in bioinformatics? Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, everyone's an individual and everyone has a different career path. I think certainly in bioinformatics, the the more coding skills uh, you have, you know, and, and think about how software engineers with um, with coding, with Git, with uh, agile programming, with 
sprints and scrums, that will only help you uh, to, to be able to code and make better software. Now, obviously, the, the goal is not to make better software. The goal is to cure patients. And so then what's next is to really have a passion about something and to really get into things. I've been so fortunate to have been able to work with outstanding scientists. I think I'm probably the last person you would, anyone would have ever expected to be working with the immune system, to be working with molecular glues. I mean, I'm a, I'm a guy who investigated and trained as a, as a geophysicist looking at the core mantle boundary. Um, and it's just being able to have that passion and to go out there and not be afraid and, and talk to people and have those conversations where you're excited about something because that excitement, I mean, that's what's taking us through the pandemic. That's what's taking us forward is, is the passion and the excitement. Yeah, there's a lot of grit that you have to have day in, day out to keep moving things forward. But it's, you know, when it's something that you're excited about, it, it's actually fun. Um, and, you know, to have those discoveries and say, wow, you know, I never knew that we could predict what a Dagron uh, would look like. I never knew that we could uh, use AI to develop small molecules. I never knew that I could predict what's going to be presented on a, a tumor cell or how a T cell is going to recognize a, an antigen and, and how you would see what its specificity is. All these, um, all these things that I've been so fortunate to have have done and accomplished because I've had great colleagues supporting me, pushing me in many cases also. Um, so having a great team is something that enables you to stay on the top of your game because you know if, if you're not, they're going to be looking at you wondering, hey, you know, hey, hey Castle, what, what's up? Uh, and so they, having great colleagues is just a, a pleasure as well. Yeah, completely agree with you on that. Um, having a great colleagues, great team is such a source motiv of motivation and accountability that like, I think each of us need, especially in this lockdown times where you probably right. don't see uh, your team members and teammates as often as you would like to. Zoom 24-7, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> correct, correct. Especially between the time zones. And actually, the last question that I wanted to ask you is on the difference in approach to science and maybe both in academia and industry between Europe and US. You obviously worked in both environments. Do you think they're actually as different as some people say? And uh, if yes, what kind of stands out for you the most? You know, that, that's a really good question. And, you know, I've thought about that a fair amount because obviously, as you can hear and as you know, you know, I grew up in the U.S., grew up in Denver, Colorado. And, um, and then I've spent a lot of time now the last decade, over the last decade, working in Europe and, and gone back and forth. You know, some of the stereotypes I find largely true. I mean, the United States uh, colleagues there, there's so much excitement, so much uh, day in, day out excitement. Um, in Europe, there's there's certainly excitement and passion, but it's probably less pronounced at times. Um, there's great scientists on both sides. Um, I think when you look at centers in the in the United States and clusters, if you will, like Boston, it's just amazing what's going on and how much is being developed there. And the the willingness to take a new idea and push it to its limit and to get an answer as frequently as possible. Uh, and that may be sometimes disruptive. You may find out quickly that it didn't work. Um, and so everyone needs to go find a new job, for example, because 
they all signed up uh, to do something and it turned out it didn't work. Whereas I find in Europe, people will often stick to something a little bit longer and maybe value a little bit more the, the continuity sometimes, which can, be, which can lead to, to breakthroughs because there are times when you just have to you know, nose down or head down and stick to something and, and follow through. Um, and so there, you have a little bit of, of that difference between the two uh, in broad terms, some of the, the willingness to take on something new. Sometimes things in the U.S. can be very trendy, and so people are jumping on the most recent trend, whereas that maybe is a little bit less in Europe. And so these are obviously broad generalizations, but um, these are what I've found. Some of the, but on both sides, you really have great scientists, uh, you have great companies, and you have passion around the world as well. Great. So I think the conclusion is no matter where you are, you have opportunity to do great science to contribute to society. And that's probably what everybody should be focusing on. Yeah, meaningful work to have something where you go in and you know you're going to make a difference is a huge, um, uh, you know, it just makes your, your, it makes your work fun. Perfect. John, before I let you go, can you please tell our audience where can they find you online if they want to follow up with you? Sure, we've. Um, that's a good question. Uh, my LinkedIn page, feel free, John Castle, J O H N C A S T L E. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way um, that I can think of. Perfect. Great. John, thank you so much for, for this very insightful interview. We covered so much ground today, and I'm really happy that, that we made it happen. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, thank you for being a wonderful guest, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you again uh, at some point soon. My pleasure. It's, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to the Personalized Medicine Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver the best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T dot com. And engage with us on social media, where we regularly share the news and exciting content on personalized medicine. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook just by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast. Or use our handle, PMATCAST. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, write us an email to team at pmatcast.com. Have a great day and until next time.